This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. Joining me on the Becoming Educated podcast today is Phil Beadle. Phil, in his own words, is a sometimes well-thought-of British educator who has authored 12 books on teaching and learning, including the 10 out of 10 from the TES magazine, How to Teach. He is the editor of the How to Teach series and has written for The Times, The Guardian, The Independent on Sunday, and The Te- Telegraph, although he's ashamed of his last one. His series of columns for Education Guardian ran for nine years before being cancelled due to bad behaviour. He's a former UK Teacher of the Year with 23 years experience of achieving transformational results with students from challenging areas. You may recognise him from the Channel 4 programme, The Unteachables, and also from his favourite one, Can't Teach, Can't Write, or from his many appearances on Teachers TV. More recently, he has authored and published the fascist painting, What is Cultural Capital, which we'll dig into today. Phil, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Cheers, Darren. So just to, to kick us off and ease us in, can you give us a little whistle-stop tour of your career to date in your own words? Right, well, you've kind of done that since I wrote the thing that you've just read out. Um, uh, I entered the teaching profession quite late. I was in my early 30s, um, and I entered it to save a relationship which I did not know was dead, which lasted six weeks after my PGCE. I did my PGCE whilst homeless and heartbroken, and then flew to Australia the day before I flew to Australia I went for an interview for a job in which I was the only candidate and it took them about four hours to decide to appoint me um, when I got back from Oz I spent seven years in Eastleigh Community School in Canning Town which is probably where I felt most at home uh, qualified as one of the first a- ASTs um, and and loved it and was was allowed to develop my own style in my own way uh i came to some kind of minor recognition through a couple of dfe projects then i went into the boss and said look i'll stay for a seventh year if i get some kind of mcdonald's employee of the month award and i thought that it was going to be of that status but it ended up one won the london secondary teacher of the year and then the uk one then things went mad for a few years um I did TV programs and then, you know, absurdly tried to combine being on telly with um, a job in Lewisham. So I'd be, I'd be doing web chats on Channel Four up till eleven and being be on telly. And then the next day, uh, I would go in after being lauded and get decimated by a really nasty Year Nine class, who, who all said at the time, oh, "Those kids on telly ain't unteachable." So we are. Um, I spent a couple of years, I did Channel 4 series, Can't Read, Can't Write, which no one watched, and then spent a couple of years, basically every single lesson that I taught was televised. (laughs) Following that, um, I went back to school, and I I think I've taught in about, I only do one-year contracts generally, and I think I've probably taught in about 13 schools over the last decade. Um, Currently... I'm writing another book and I'm doing some freelance work, uh, English teaching work for a firm called Impress the Examiner. Brilliant. Just, just for those of us who don't know, can you, can you share what an AST is, please? AST was, a, it was an old role which was actually valuable. It was the advanced skills teacher, which they got rid of. And the idea of the advanced skills teacher was you'd have a, a really decent practitioner 
And as I've always worked in schools in challenging circumstances, advanced school skills teachers were meant to do outreach work, work, but I was allowed to do in-reach work. So I would work with uh, colleagues who were struggling, um, colleagues who were on competency and trying to basically try and save their careers. Well, that's, it would be would be a valuable role now. I, I definitely imagine. So thanks for that, Phil. And we're going to talk today about about your latest book published from John Cat, the the fascist painting. What is cultural capital? What what is it about, and and why did you write it? It, it was a bit bit weird, really. I I got asked to deliver a speech on it uh, in Hackney, which is kind of my crowd, a load of left wing teachers talking about culture. And I devoted quite a while to constructing a speech. And of course, the virus descended. It was meant to be on 20th of March. And I'd spent 14 days on it and wasn't going to get paid. <coughs> so I thought, well, it doesn't look like I'm going to be up to much for the next six months. I'll, I'll just continue writing the speech. And so the speech eventually got to 95,000 words long before we went through an editing process. So um, that, that was how it came about. What is it about? It's a left-wing slash maybe Marxist analysis of the work of Pierre Bourdieu predominantly. And that work is an examination of how culture, far from being this kind of spiritually enlivening thing that we take it to be, is actually a means through which we denote animalism in other people and a means of replicating the class structures that exist. So the the start of the fascist painting, you start start investigating Thomas and Matthew Arnold, and Matthew Matthew Arnold's um, quote permeates education literature and discourse, and that is the best that has been thought and said, and it's also been used by Ofsted. So I, I, I find what what you're extremely fascinating. So can you share why Matthew Arnold is perhaps not the man we should be basing our curriculum on? Well, because he's a he was a prolix, privately educated snob who did not believe that the working classes were actually able to commune with any form of culture. So what, yeah, what we have is a situation where Gove, privately educated Gove in his secondary years, has come in and he's, <coughs> he's instated all these private school tropes. So then he may very well have studied Matthew Arnold at school, though perhaps not, but certainly this access to the best that has been thought and said, which is a misquote, by the way, because it's the best which has been thought and said, is a private school trope. And this private school trope um, exists, I think, to promote, uh, to promote specific forms of culture as being better than other forms of culture. Now, if we go back to where this comes from, it comes from a book called Culture and Anarchy. And Culture and Anarchy, why was it written? It was written to get us out of what Matthew Arnold describes as our present difficulties. You do a little bit of research into the time it was written, and it transpires that the present difficulties is that there have been political protests and, um, and white working class urban males had actually been given the vote. So the present difficulties are an enfranchised working class. So that gives you just, just a hint of an idea of where this guy sat in terms of class prejudice. So he was arguing for the enculturation of the middle classes so that the middle classes could become fit to rule because the aristocracy were in decline. And he argued that they would become fit to rule over the working class, uh, whose, whose enfranchisement was causing tumult and disorder. And 
they, they would become fit to rule through access to Hellenic culture. So this, this view of culture, and it, his view of culture is that culture is by nature disinterested, meaning that there's no economic basis for it. It's just man's search after his own perfection. Mm -hmm. But this view of culture as disinterested, which has lasted for about a hundred years, and many, many people will have, was exploded a hundred years later on by this French sociologist called Pierre Bourdieu. And Pierre Bourdieu argues that culture itself is not disinterested, as, you know, and as I said to the previous questions, it is used as a means of denote, denoting animalism in the other. And if we think about working class attitudes to culture, working class attitudes to high culture, you think about perhaps you might have the same attitude being working class to classical music that I have, which is, I don't get it. It's not for me. And the reason for that is because I wasn't encultured into it. Okay. And so consequently, ruling class children or upper middle class children will be encultured into various forms of culture from a very, very early age. Um, whereas working class kids won't. So, for instance, in, in, in my case, I was enlivened to the possibilities of the beauty of literature at the age of about 14 or 15 when I realised that I could understand Keats. Um, now, the ruling class, a middle class kid, uh, upper middle class kid, may have been encultured into this since the ages of four and five. And so consequently, what happens with the way we view culture as disinterested is that what it serves to do is just replicate replicate class systems and, and you know class systems which are oppressive and in which there is no equality of opportunity so the fascist painting in the book is it's a profoundly political work that that seeks to overturn various views certainly the the current tory view of how culture is to be used in school so offset went further um, with following the best that has been thought and said by saying the essential knowledge that people's need to be educated citizens. Is this what cultural capital is? No, it's not at all. Um, it, it's just fascinating this, how badly they've got it wrong. Um, the essential knowledge that pupils need to be educated citizens, if you accept that, is not cultural capital, it's cultural literacy. And despite the fact that these two things, have got, these two concepts have got the words cultural in them, they are entirely distinct things. Um, cultural literacy is a, is a concept originated by E.D. Hirsch, and it argues perfectly sensibly, though there are political colourings we may want to have a look at, that uh, working class children need a body of mainstream knowledge in order to comprehend texts. But that is not what cultural capital is. Cultural capital is something defined by, by Pierre Bourdieu, and it, it, yeah, they're, they're, they're entirely distinct. And what intrigues me about this is that you have a class of people who are in charge of education policy at the moment who assert their own intellectual superiority and yet they, you know, they just have not done their homework on this and it's pitiful. It certainly is. So what then is, is cultural capital? If it's, if it's, you've certainly articulated there that it's distinct from cultural literacy. What, what exactly is and how does Pierre Bourdieu define it? Right, well, cultural capital comes, and again, this is so funny. Cultural capital is Bourdieu's way of exploding this notion of um, culture being economically disinterested. So it, it's actively attempting to satirise the work of Matthew Arnold. So let's, let's look at what they're doing. They're attempting to, to define um, the work of a 
Marxist sociologist by, by the person that his work was set up to disagree with. It's insane. Cultural capitalist Borgia actually making a kind of not, not particularly funny and not particularly difficult sociological joke. So he takes this idea of culture being by nature disinterested and deliberately takes a word from finance, capital, to show the kind of hidden relationships between finance and culture that one might otherwise have seen. Um, so what does, how does Bourdieu term it? He, he says that there's three distinct versions of cultural capital, though he does add that mostly it's, it's a certain facility with language. There is, the easiest one to understand is, uh, is objectified cultural capital. So basically, if you're rich enough to own a painting or a very expensive guitar, then that is transferable, meaning if you get skin, you can fog the painting or the guitar. So it's transferable into money immediately. Um, then there is institutionalized cultural capital, which is what you would get from a school or a legitimizing institution. So certificates of competence in certain subjects, GCSEs and A-levels, they're institutionalized cultural capital. And the conversion rates are diff different because you, you can't cash them in straight away. What you can do is get a job. Mm -hmm. um, the third one is the most interesting one. It's called embodied cultural capital. Now, embodied cultural capital I find fascinating because it's one of the very, very few things in life that you can't buy. You have to work on it. You have to work on it. Like Bodju says, it's like a suntan on muscles. You, you have to commit to, to work on the self. So, for instance, the fact that you know, I've written my 12th book now and, and I'm a pretty fluid writer and I wrote for a decade for The Guardian. That's my, my ability as a writer and indeed any, any teacher's ability as a teacher is a form of embodied cultural capital. Now, that embodied cultural capital can win you institutional capital. It can eventually win you um, objectified cultural capital. But mostly what it does is it wins you social capital. Now, social capital is, is um, friendships and friendships with powerful or talented people that come with some kind of cashable obligation. Um, so what Bourdieu is doing now is doing is is he's dragging out the kind of financial relationships in capital, it's sorry, in culture that we might not otherwise see. Certainly. So do you think then that this idea of putting in frameworks that the essential knowledge that people need to be educating citizens is the the ruling class or the the middle class trying to force upon what you mentioned earlier, high culture onto the working class? Right, the intention of this, I had an epiphany about this a couple of weeks ago. I was um, getting together a webinar for, to present on cultural capital, and as part of it, I was looking at various forms of pop culture. And I was just um, uh, animating a, a video of Skinny Man's Council of State of the Mind, which is a, you know, a really good piece of hip-hop. And... And looking at how we might direct kids towards kind of the more valuable, valuable working class art forms away from the sugary pop songs. And it dawned on me actually exactly what this drive for cultural capital is. And it is a dr drive to destroy pop culture. 
is because pop culture, working class pop culture, is the one thing that the ruling classes really don't understand. They have no access to it and they cannot control it. And that pop culture, that working class culture, is about expressing your dissent at the conditions you have been put under. Now, what do you get an authoritarian right-wing government filled with people who have already got everything? You get them more, okay? And how do you get more? You do that by crushing any political dissent. So the idea of cultural capital exists to replace working class culture. And by working class culture, I also mean the NHS, the union, unionism, um, the labor movement, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, Extinction Rebellion, making all of these things less appealing than this alleged high culture, which they will tell you, and Matthew Arnold tell you, will tell you, is the best that has been thought and said. Now, where does the best that has been thought and said come from? It comes from the dominators, it comes from the ruling class, it comes from those that have been historically in control. So this is a, a nakedly political act, putting cultural capital on, on the curriculum, from a government who have recently banned the, uh, you know, certain organisations from having their materials presented in schools. Hmm. So, so we're now going to, you mentioned um, social capital there and you mentioned language earlier on, so we're going to dig into them a little bit. Mm -hmm. So before we do that, what then, what role then does the school play in developing cultural capital? Because you're writing the fascist painting that the working class experience of school can be that it fails to live up to what it promises. Yeah, oddly I was writing about this today or yesterday in, in the work, white working class book. Um, you're going to have to cue me up again, Darren, I'm sorry. So, okay, so... Question, the question then, Phil, is what role does the school play in developing, developing cultural capital? Because you wrote in the book, uh, The Fascist Painting, that the working class experience of school can be that it fails to live up to what it promises. Well, the working class experience of school is, is that people tell you a lot of lies sometimes and that adults tell you lies. So, for instance, at the beginning of every year in my years when I was a form tutor, I'd sit with my form group while the head of year stood up in, in front of everybody and went, this is the most important year of your lives. And I've sat next to kids are going, no way, man, I thought it was last year. <laughs> Shit, teachers are lying to us. <laughs> and and one, of the, one of my favorite lies, and it pretty well every kid sees through this, is the work hard at school, get good qualifications, get a good job, get married, have kids, be happy. Now, if you're from certain working class communities, this, this just falls down at every point. Your dad probably didn't work that hard at school, but your dad may have a decent job and you might have fancy electrical equipment. So the, the working one of the things about white working class kids, and you know, probably black working class kids as well, is that they're no respecters of the sacred and they're used to authorities lying to them. Um, now, in terms of whether school is useful, well, it should be. Now, the, one of the issues with Bourdieu is this notion of the habitus, or one of his key concepts, in that we all have what's called a primary habitus, which is our ingrained dispositions so that, that come from childhood. So, for instance, I, I live in a family of five people where I'm, I'm actually the only person from working class heritage. My kids are middle class. My, my wife is from an entirely separate social station. 
And I have an ingrained habitus about appropriate ways of washing up, uh, what is appropriate food that they don't have. And your ingrained primary habitus can be very, very difficult to shift. And this is one of the problems with schools is that they seek to steal the kids' primary habitus of them. But it can be adapted and you can grow a secondary habitus. So whilst I, I'm you know, of working class stock and I eat meat and three veg every single meal in the evenings, no matter what the rest of my family are eating, I also, through work on embedded uh, embodied cultural capital, I've also grown a primary habitus, uh, sorry, a secondary habitus. So whereas if I'm down the boozer with my dad, yeah, I'll, I'll be talking in Cockney rhyming slang in a much, much broader accent than this one. Through schooling, I've also been able to grow the skills of articulation that I'm using to attempt to express myself now. So the, you know, so the issue with the working class experience of school, and yeah, this is about another book, is that it can tell you lies, it disrespects your home, and that probably even your community don't really respect it. And I certainly, certainly understand from, from my own experience uh, growing up what you, what you mean by that. I'm going to dig in a little bit about your next book later on in the, in the interview. And you mentioned earlier this idea of social capital. And you write that social capital is one of the key means through which inequalities continue. What do you mean by that? Right, well, let's look at two people, Tarquin and Terry. Um, now, Terry's a big Arsenal fan. Um, he has got quite a lot of embodied cultural capital. He worked really, really hard at school. Um, he's a legitimate autodidact, um, but he's also got certain sporting cultural capital in that he once threw 180 at darts and he's in possession of a sweet left foot. Okay, he's a very good football player. Tarquin, on the other hand, didn't try very hard at school at all. Okay, Tarquin had it all on a plate. He didn't get particularly great... Uh, qualifications from the elite institution that he went to. Um, he's not good at football or at darts. However, he can play polo and croquet. Um, and his dad owns a yacht. Now, we have a look at what Terry's social capital is, being working class and a football fan. Well, he knows a couple of Sunday league players. Um, and he met some quite nice middle-class people at university and eventually went out with one of them. But his, cultural, his uh, social capital compared to Tarquin's is non-existent. It buys him nothing. Mm -hmm. yeah, his mates down the Sunday league team might, might be able to fix his plumbing once in a while. Tarquin's social capital, on the other hand, buys him a lot because he went to an elite institution. He knows people in very, very high positions. He knows people in high positions down the yacht club. And Tarquin, despite his lack of academic qualifications, is perceived to be a nice dude. And therefore, how social capital plays out, and I, you know, I've experienced this myself, is that there are long-term obligations. As a result, Terry, despite getting a really decent degree, cannot get graduate work. But Tarquin, because of his social capital, He's got a very, very decent job in a bank. It's nothing to do with his economic qualifications. It's to do with like appoints like. And people, elite, people in elite positions are often from elite institutions and they will appoint the image of themselves. Certainly, and gives, gives rise to that idea of it's not what you know, it's, it's who you know, certainly. Um, so, thinking about then how we can develop cultural capital for people, why, why is language 
key to developing cultural capital? Right, because language is is the means through which one expresses oneself. And language, having access to certain forms of language is the means of having a voice. Because without the ability to articulate your emotional landscape or um, your apprehension of your conditions or your understanding of politics, you do not have a voice. Most working class people in this country, it is as if they are mute because they're not to be listened to because they cannot articulate themselves well enough. And so the, the key cultural capital is the cultural capital that I'm displaying at the moment. But in, in order to protest about your conditions, in order to read Matthew Arnold and to be able to dismantle him, in order to recognize the various elements of classism in every single structure that exists in our society, then you have to be able to call it out. And you have to be able to call it out in a language that the elite, that the ruling class are obliged to listen to. So it is, it is absolutely the key cultural capital. Certainly. So the schools have a key role in, in building that cultural capital. Aside from being nice to kids whose lives are too difficult for them, it is the most important thing that schools do. The most important thing that schools do or should do is to teach children to articulate themselves technically excellently and vibrantly in both spoken and written forms of language. Without it, you do not have a voice. Certainly, and you articulate, you write in the book a, a story about you teaching, I don't know how long ago it was, but you, you would teach up to 30 new words a lesson. Can you, can you share a little bit more about that? Well, it's how, it's how I, I teach every lesson. I've always, you know, I, I tend to avoid fashionable pedagogies and I always just go my own way. Um, I've, I've always viewed new language as the driver of the learning and it's new language that you need to come out with because new language, one, it embodies conceptual ideas. But two, my responsibility as a teacher is to leave my children more articulate than, than they were before they had me as a teacher. So every single lesson I will define yeah, 10, 13, 8, 9, new pieces of high-order subject-specific uh, vocabulary. And that will be after I've done a, a little bit of a kind of um, retention exercise. That will be the first thing that I will teach them. And I'll teach them from the front and I'll illustrate each one of the words and then I'll get them to record definitions. So you mentioned they're fashionable pedagogies. Can you share a little bit more about what you're thinking there? Well, if we skip to a later question, you at the end of this, because you, you kindly showed me the question, so it's going to be asked. You ask, you're going to ask me at the end of this, and maybe you won't now, um, what books have been most influential on me as a teacher? Mm -hmm. And I've really struggled with that. I've been thinking about it this afternoon because the answer is really none. In the, first of all, when I started teaching this kind of, plethora of edgy, edgy books didn't really exist mm -hmm. um, but secondly I generally tend to regard published resources as rather useless compared to the stuff that I would come up with in my own head and so consequently I've never really been massively influenced by by anything else other than my own view of teaching as an art form. Okay, so what do you mean by teaching as an art form? Well, we're moving over towards a very scientifically orientated view of teaching, mm -hmm. which is that if you can measure it, then it's important. 
And I think what this is doing is tipping things over into kind of tipping an art form into something which is wildly bureaucratic. And so we're attempting to find this tiny marginal gain through interleaving and this tiny marginal gain through, through this kind of somewhat disputed scientific theory about cognitive science. When actually, for me, this is a, a complete rebalancing of, of what education should be about. It's, it's taken it so far in the, of the seesaw away from humanism. It's taken it so far away from creativity and it's taken it so far away from education for children being an experience that they should enjoy and value. And it's, it's becoming basically authoritarian. The, the kind of pedagogies approved of by the uncommon schools are control pedagogies. And my view as somebody who is absolutely expert at managing the behavior of difficult kids is a, a lot of these come from the teacher's fear of, of the shame of not being able to control their class. And so we have a kind of rigidity about behavior management at the moment and a, and a, a deep lack of imagination in terms of pedagogy from those influential voices from what I would regard as the far right, which is having, to my perspective, a really profoundly negative effect on students' experience of education. It may not be having a, a negative impact on the outcomes that we measure, but on them properly engaging with it with their hearts and on them not being bored and then they're not feeling as if this authoritarian figure is controlling them and talking at them for one and a half hours. I think the current way that we're going in terms of teaching orthodoxy is blinkered, um, borderline fascist and naive. Okay, so do you think that's then hindering the young people in our schools getting the cultural capital that, that, that they need? This I don't know because yeah I I I do work sometimes for mats um, and I think some have more rigid authoritarian approaches than other but there is a yeah a version of education some of which I agree with where you know the intellectual expectations are, are very very high mm -hmm. but actually those intellectual expectations come with other other stuff which is which is totalitarian. So, for instance, Doug Lemoff's Sloan, totalitarian, okay, where you've got, got black bodies being controlled by white dominators who will tell you how you have to sit, who will tell you that you have to nod your head along with the teacher, that will tell you you have to look at the teacher in every, uh, every single moment. It's totalitarianism. Mm. No, I, 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 completely, I completely understand that. What, what I did find interesting is that... You mentioned a little bit about cognitive science and you said when, when I asked you about teaching the, the 13 new words a lesson, I mean, I would have loved to have learned 13 new words every time I was, I was in front of my, my teacher. I think that would have massively helped me in my own development. But you mentioned there and then you mentioned you do a little bit of a retention exercise, which is a lot of the things that some of the, some of the cognitive scientists try, trying to tell teachers. Do, do Aaron, do you yeah. not do you not think we were doing this 20 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 
Absolutely. So is that, is that not then just clarifying and, and giving? Look, we, the, the, the thing is that every generation thinks it invented sex. <laughs> of course, yes. And you have post-teach first, a generation of teachers who go to the summer school indoctrination that are taught there is only one way to teach and that, you know, that are taught there are some form of elite and that they have some kind of missionary quality and they're civilising the uncivilizable. <laughs> but the, this is a, a, a profession with a great tradition of pedagogy. And what's happened post Teach First is that ev everything prior to Teach First was meant to be rubbish. Well, I'm sorry, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> and there were some brilliant, brilliant teachers of my generation of above. And th th this is the difference. The teachers of the generation above me, I worshipped because they were old hands and they knew how to do things that I didn't know. But we have a kind of messianic view, you know, a, a younger generation, some of teachers who have a kind of messianic view that regards the craft of experience as being less useful mm -hmm. than, than cognitive science and I think it's a, a view that could probably get you into a bit of trouble when you're working in a very tough school. Mm -hmm. well, certainly I, I love what you said there about you know teachers were doing that before that I uh, my favorite teacher was it was a uh, a very fashionable chap called uh, Jeff Jones, and I like to think that that I model a lot of my teaching on him. But he was the exact, he was the very same back in the back in the days. He would he would probe me, he would challenge me, and he would believe that I had all the answers within me. But before that, he would teach me the stuff, and then he would make sure I know the stuff. And you're exactly right. So thank you for that. And uh, I'm going to move on a little bit now and get back into digging into the, the fascist paint. So thank you for, for going with, with me there, Phil. Um, what, as a PE teacher, I was quite interested in your chapter on sport. So what role does sport have in building cultural capital? That's a very, very difficult one. Um, and it, it, it's a, a kind of line that I find very problematic. Now, if I can... I have to be careful of my language here because I've had to sign some version of the Official Secrets Act for this. <laughs> um, but I, I, I'm a, yeah, a white working class football fan who was just short of semi-pro standard. Um, and I have worked in elite levels and I've worked with the coaches from the very, very highest elite level that is possible. Um, and I find it I find my conclusions really difficult because I, I love the game, mm. um, but I don't think it's got any place in schools. Um, there is a counter argument to that. The counter argument, uh, uh, but I, I don't think there's any slam dunker of a counter argument for um, sport in schools. The counter argument I think is best is that you build social capital, but it, this is a you know, not necessarily hugely positive social capital in some instances. So Diane Ray, I think, says that the social capital in working class communities is, is built outside of school in the sports club. Well, in which case, keep it outside of school. I tend towards thinking, and again, I accept that sport itself is not an anti-intellectual exercise. I tend towards thinking that we need to have a more objective view of it uh, in that uh, I don't know if you, you, you must have encountered hundreds of boys that opted out because they were going to be a footballer who never had any chance whatsoever of being a footballer. 
And I think we do need to have a look at the negative impact that that football, for instance, plays on white working class communities in terms of their engagement with education and and also their engagement with politics. Because all the time, you know, the debate in who's going to be in the national bag chasing team and and examining how they're going to chase a bag of wind themselves on a Saturday and discussing that. It's really a distraction technique away from their conditions. And it really is. It's redirection technique. The, the ruling class love the fact that working class boys are fascinated with football because it stops them thinking about politics. So is that what you mean then when you write in the book that sports should be disentangled from its place in schools? Yes, yeah. Um, I, you know, the, there are arguments for it, but I don't think that there is an argument for it that isn't massively undermined by its impact in the social space. That, yeah, I'm repeating myself really. I think sport has an immensely negative impact on British society. I think the amount of time we devote to it has an immensely negative impact. And the, the endorsement of it by an education system, and this, yeah, this is really a difficult chat to have with a PE teacher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the endorsement of it by an education system is, to an extent, endorsing education which does not educate. Okay, I get, what you, I get what you mean by that. So, because the children are, are doing sport, they're talking about football, they're not, de- they're not improving their language, they're not developing the social capital and, and affect the cultural capital that they may need to, to move on in life. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, I've kind of re- repeated myself already, really. Mm. It, it's a very, very difficult area. And if... The idea of, of sociology, uh, certainly Bourdieu's sociology, was to take what's called an antidoxic approach. Now, an antidoxic approach is looking at common sense ideas and seeing whether there's any truth in them. And to me, the idea of sport in school, and I put in a tw- put a tweet about it, um, <clears throat> and had loads of loads of people responding, giving me arguments with sport in schools, but I didn't really think that any of them were fully valid when rather than studying you know how to throw a javelin you could potentially be studying marks or you could potentially be studying um great writing or you could potentially developing your your voice in terms of your ability to critique things i think those two hours could be better spent it's very 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 sorry it's very 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 interesting to to, to, hear, to hear you say that, especially as a, as a physical educator and, and someone that really values the role of, of, of sport. And I was, a, I was a working class boy in school that, that worshipped football and like yourself, wasn't as good enough to make it my career. I did make it my, I did make it my career once I, I left university. I was a f- full-time football coach for a while until I became a PE teacher. So it, it, do you not think it can give you the cultural capital it needs? Because the connections I have within football can help me well, it can help me within football. Yeah, I'm perhaps arguing your point there. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll move. We'll move on. We'll move on. Can I can I come into the the close of of the main interview section? I've got a couple more questions, and next one then is 
is what should we then do in schools to give students the, the cultural capital that they need uh, that is real and valuable and, as you write, gets offstead off our backs? Right. Well, they, they, there is, at the end of the book, a very, very complex plan, which is the result of kind of <laughs> a, a really dense exploration of, of it. But ultimately, it boils down to the distinction between vulgarity and refinement. Mm-hmm. Now, vulgarity is just another synonym for working class and refined is a synonym for ruling class. Mm-hmm. Where the ruling class seek refinement through art um, is through focusing on form rather than function. So if we explain this with reference to food. The working class attitude to food is, is if it sustains you, it's good. So we focus on, on the function of it. It's for fueling your body. Mm-hmm. Whereas the ruling class attitude towards it is to focus on the cutlery and the presentation. So despite the fact that this is absolute rubbish, because you know, food, the function of food is very, very important. This is a means through which the ruling class distinguish themselves from other classes. And they also distinguish themselves from being inculcated into certain legitimate and high cultural forms from an early age. So actually through a kind of dense process of, of left-wing um, investigation of this, I've concluded that, well, actually, yes, we do need more legitimate and high culture in schools, mm-hmm. that we do need access to these things. We do need kids to have access to classical music. We do need them to have access to visual art, which, which they do already have. But what, what we need to do is to shift the culture of the arts in schools leftwards in two ways. One is not political. That the arts in schools, the way we teach theatre, the way that we teach literature, the way that we teach perhaps even sport, the way that we teach visual art, should focus on the, the formalist forms of it as opposed to the naturalistic forms of it. So that working class kids can be, can become expert in this notion of form over function and can therefore compete on a level playing field. Mm-hmm. But it needs to shift leftwards in another area in that we have to explain the political function of culture now what Ofsted have done accidentally have given us a tool to do this because it is not a defensible position i think to say with reference to the national curriculum that we must expand kids cultural capital it's not defensible to say that you then then you cannot teach pierre bourdieu so when, for instance, they flood the curriculum with jingoistic colonial area poems, mm-hmm. you know, we are obliged to teach those. But actually, we must also explain their political context, how they came about, and why they are on the curriculum. So why might a ruling class establishment want working class children to, uh, to memorise colonial era, po- era poems? And I think the answer is pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Certainly, as it goes back to what we said earlier on, is that they're trying to the ruling class are trying to enforce the, the this high culture upon upon the working class. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. And it's a way of instating obedience, and it's a way of resurrecting patriotism. The ruling class are, are you know, like they're very very keen on football. They're also very very keen on uh, saluting the flag. Certainly. Mm-hmm. So, so then. How then do we get more working class children to access the game of culture? Right, it, it's a, Borgia's got another concept called 
symbolic violence. Mm -hmm. And symbolic violence <coughs> is, is what is happening in our schools at the moment. Now, it's, it's a, again, a controversial concept. And there are serious heavyweight um, sociologists that really don't like it. But symbolic violence is where you take one class's culture away from them, away from them and replace it with another culture that you imply has more value. So, for instance, <coughs> viewing working class kids as being disadvantaged, that's an act of symbolic violence. We're not saying that the white working class child or the black working class child or the Asian child has, Asian working class child, has a culture that is of value. We're saying they are, they are imprisoned within their deficits. Okay? They are disadvantaged. They are less than. Um, and then the further symbolic violence is, is we give them ruling class culture, the stuff that the, the fish in waters, the, the people from the, the upper middle class and the ruling class have been learning since they're four. And this replicates, replicates the, why, yeah, how do we get working class kids to embrace the game of culture? by teaching it in a non-symbol about how I teach Aristotelian rhetoric. Um, and I do it through, through basically through being extremely jokey and, uh, and subtly political, but also by making it obvious how simple it is. Because one of the problems with working class engagement is not only can we not see what this is for, but, but, but it tends to be presented in a, in a very kind of dry way. And it's possible to present ruling class culture to kids in a way that one, they can see the value in it because you've explained it properly. Mm -hmm. And two, that it's engaging. But mostly so that we can have an end point where they can see it for the sorry sham that it is. So if you ask a kid that hasn't been taught Aristotelian rhetoric whether they'd enjoy it, they'd say no. If you ask a kid that I've taught recently about Aristotelian rhetoric, they'd tell you, well, yeah, it's really simple. You can have a lot of fun with it. So how do we get kids to embrace um, culture? It's a, th a kind of three-way thing. The first thing we have to do is not insult their primary inhabitants. By, we not seek to steal their culture off them, mm -hmm. not present them as, as a deficit. Then the second thing that we have to do is present the legitimate cultural forms in in, in ways that don't seek to dominate them, by explaining the political context, by explaining the ways in which these forms are used to dominate them, and then leading them through subtle and nuanced presentation of these forms to an understanding. And that understanding is that we can have access to these. They're perfectly understandable. We're easily clever enough. So for instance, with, with teaching Aristotelian rhetoric to kids, if you ask a working class kid whether they'd enjoy Aristotelian rhetoric, they probably just look really uh, confused. Um, but after, so, say, 10 lessons with me, what we, what we end up understanding is that actually Aristotelian rhetoric is not intellectually complicated in any way. Um, it's just a series of linguistic tricks. And we can examine how Boris Johnson uses this series of linguistic tricks to get our dads to vote for him. Mm -hmm. So the, the intention of any sensible approach to cultural capital is that yes, it'll get off, stood by, off your back by teaching ruling class culture, but it does so in order to equip the kids with some kind of symbolic judo with which they can protect themselves. 
whereby when some somebody at university starts talking about Aristotle, they go, oh, yeah, I know all about that. That's just three, three, threes within twos and ridiculous versions of repetition. So it's, it is entirely possible to use this concept uh, to make kids' lives better. So I love that idea of symbolic judo to help them when they, when they go to university and they can, and they, can they don't feel out, feel out of place in the, in the conversations that, that, that are being had. So thank you for that. Finally, um, Phil, before we move on to the final three, is, is you mentioned, we mentioned before coming on about your, your next book and you, you're right at the end of the fascist painting that you're currently got a forthcoming title called what's to be done about the white working class. What can you tell us about that? I can tell you I've been avoiding writing it for 15 years. <laughs> it's, right, this is my key passion. I've been working on it for 15 years. I present on this issue probably once a year, and that's, that I find fascinating. So I present a day on the barriers to white working class underachievement, and how what schools need to do to understand the culture of the children that they have in front of them. And I find it just astonishing that I've done quite serious work on this, but there's no demand for it, because this to me is the longest running and most tragic travesty of British education, that the white working class boys particularly, but also many of the girls are just allowed to fail. Mm -hmm. um, but because I regard the work as a great responsibility, I've been shirking it really. Um, and I wanted to, because uh, yeah, this is, I'm 55 years of age and I'm a smoker and a heavy one at that. Um, I, talk, I tend to regard this as my legacy work. And so consequently, writing it is an acceptance that I'm going to die. Um <laughs> 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 uh, so, sorry Dan so, so I've yeah I've accepted that I'm going to die and that I need to leave some work behind and this is going to be hopefully my most serious important piece so I'm definitely as I mentioned to you to you, to you off here being a, a white working class male I'm definitely excited to 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 read it so before we move on to the final three and um, we've come to the end of, of the main interview section which is it's been truly fascinating and went on went in <laughs> went in some interesting ways can you share with the listeners where they can firstly buy the fascist painting? What is cultural capital? Also where they can, they can connect with you perhaps on social media and where can they find out more about you and of course your past works? Uh, right. So where can they buy the book on Amazon or some people are buying it on Hive because apparently Hive is more ethical. Uh, where can they connect with me? I'm on Twitter as at, Phil Beadle, Beadle, B-E-A-D-L-E. -E. And I, I think what I would advise, if, if people are interested in what I've said, then I'd say go onto YouTube and have a look at videos of me teaching. Because out of all the kind of profiled educationalists, I'm probably the only one that you can actually see teach. And have a look at those videos and compare them perhaps to you know what's going on in your school and see whether things really have moved forward certainly and having having seen something i'll definitely definitely encourage people to people to do that thank you very much phil it brings us on to the final three questions which you've already answered one of them um, the questions that these are questions that i ask every guest 
Yeah, ask me, ask me again because I can do, a, do an answer on it. I certainly will. So my first one, Phil, is what book or text had the biggest impact on your career? Right, no teaching books, but I have read Julian Evans' Educational Failure on White Working Class Children in Britain four times now. Mm-hmm. Christopher Hitchens is an influence as a writer because he's such a brilliant writer. Um, Chomsky, Gramsci, Bourdieu, any left-wing thinkers. Um, and I'm kind of ideologically aligned to Paul Dix. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Second question, Phil, is, is if you could give just one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? Don't listen to anybody that wants to give you one piece of advice. <laughs> well, and there's a, there's a point to that, and that teaching is multifaceted and nuanced and difficult and it can take your lifetime to to practice it seriously and still not think you've got got it mastered mastered do not look for easy solutions from people selling you snake oil perfect thank you very much for that one um, and finally phil uh, i'm really interested to hear what you what you have to say for this one is what do you think most gets in the way of great teaching Current political orthodoxies, um, scientism, uh, authoritarian behaviour management systems, far-right views that crush any form of dissent, um, and people that couldn't teach for shit telling you how to teach. (laughs) Thank you very much, Phil. So that brings us to to the end of the interview, which has been truly fascinating. Um, I'd like to thank you very, very much for, for giving me so much of your time. Uh, and obviously I would encourage people to, to read your book it definitely as you read it you, you agree you, and, and also you find yourself disagreeing with some points but that's the whole point in, in generating that discussion so thank you very much Phil okay thanks Dan thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast until next time teach with joy